If you have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn in them to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. This morning, we not only will consider this passage, but as we get into our catechism sermon, we also will consider a, a couple other passages as well. But I'd like us to, to just read now Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. The context of, of Hebrews, basically up until this point, the author to the Hebrews was explaining how Jesus is the greater sacrifice, how Jesus is the greater priest when compared to the sacrifices and priests of the Old Testament. And he has offered a definitive sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And this then begins, you can say, the application section of Hebrews. How should we respond to what Jesus has done in his sacrifice of himself as our great high priest? That's why this passage begins with, therefore. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hear now the word of our God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, please also take out your order of worship and look, at, look with me at the confessional reading element. This morning we are confessing together Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 20, uh, 22, question and answers 57 through 58. This concludes the catechism's explanation or exposition of the Apostles' Creed. I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 57 asks, How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh raised by the power of Christ will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Question 58 asks, How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally.
As I mentioned, we are currently considering uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is a reformational document written in 1563, and it was seeking to, in one sense, restore to the church the ancient practice of instructing the church. The word catechism merely means instruction. That's why uh, Luther, one thing that Luther said during the Protestant Reformation is that we have a catechism on our pulpit, something that has not occurred in over a thousand years. So last week we, we considered the five solas, some of the hallmarks of the Reformation. Well, the catechism is also one of the hallmarks of the Reformation. It sought to instruct the church in some of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. So as, as a quick review, uh, boys and girls, what are the three G's of the Reformation? Violet? Very good. And what, what G are we currently considering? Isaiah? Grace. Very good. Even more specifically, we are in the context of, 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 of faith. What are the three elements of true faith? Marcus? Knowledge, assent, and trust. Cat. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Trust, cat with a K. And the content of this faith is, Annabelle? The Apostles' Creed. Very good. As I mentioned, we are now considering the last two articles of, of the Apostles' Creed. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Was Christians uh, confessing our faith is an important thing. Confessing our faith is an important thing. Some of the benefits of confessing our faith include, uh, includes that it, it helps us interpret Scripture. When we recognize the difference between Scripture and our confession, it allows us to scrutinize our confession and thus better able to interpret the Scriptures. It, it serves as a means of preserving the truth of God's Word and the Gospel message. We see that it's a means of worship. As well, it's a means of worship, and um, that's not to say that it's commanded of us as well. Scripture calls us to be a people who confess our faith, and therefore, confessing our faith is very beneficial. It's important, but here we see in this Lord's Day and also in this passage that confessing our faith also serves as a means of cultivating hope. Notice how in Hebrews ten, uh, twenty three. We read, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. The author is connecting these two ideas of confession and hope. He's saying that part of our confession includes hope. Hope in some future reality. And therefore, when we confess that hope, we are seeking to hold fast to these truths that we have been given. Now, in the context of the Apostles' Creed, You'll notice that these two articles, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, are part of our confession of hope. These are things that we have not yet experienced. These are things that are future realities to us in this age. And thus, these are things that we confess regarding our hope. So as we will continue in our reflection of these articles, we are to remember that we confess our faith. We grow up into this confession as a means of cultivating our hope. Now, I'd like us to think just for a brief moment about hope, the nature of hope. How do we use hope in our day-to-day -day language? This is a, a 
not necessarily a rhetorical question. How, how do we use hope in our day-to-day -day language? To wish. Good. Well, it's something in the future, is it not? We, we don't say, I hope for something in the past. <laughs> it's something in the future. But Lauren's point about it being a wish is, is, is a good point because when we express hope in our day-to-day -day language, we're expressing hope, expressing hope in something that's possible but yet uncertain. Whenever we use hope in our day-to-day -day speech, we're speaking about something that is uncertain. It's desirable, it's possible, but it is uncertain. For those of you who watch sports, the um, World Series just got uh, was completed last night, and we you may have been rooting for one individual team over another. I hope that the Phillies win, the Astros win, but it's not certain. Right? You're expressing hope in a desirable outcome that may or may not happen. Well, biblical hope has some similarities to our colloquial use of hope, but it also has some fundamental differences. So when we are expressing biblical hope, we are expressing um, hope in, in the future reality. So that's a similarity. But our biblical hope is not uncertain. Our biblical hope is certain and assured. Certain and assured. When we're expressing biblical hope in something, it's, it's a hope in something that's certain and assured. And in that sense, it's qualitatively different than how we use the word hope in our day-to-day -day speech. Therefore, when we speak about our hope in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, we're not just expressing our desire for a possible and un uncertain outcome. We're expressing our desire for a certain and assured outcome. So this is what makes Christian hope distinctive from how we use hope in our day-to-day -day speech. What I'd like us to do then as we consider these articles as, as part of the content of our confession of hope that we are to hold fast to without wavering, I'd like us to consider uh, three elements in, in these two questions and answers. So we'll consider how we have uh, the hope of our soul being with Christ after we die. Uh, we have the hope of a future resurrection of the body. And then we also have the hope of life everlasting. So first, we confess the hope of our soul being with Christ after we die. Now, if you still have your Bibles open, I encourage you to turn back a little ways to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, and specifically Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Now, in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a congregation that he had, he had himself planted in Philippi, and he's writing to this beloved congregation that he held with much affection, and he's writing to them, and he speaks about his current context. Paul is writing from what likely was a Roman prison, awaiting a possible trial which could lead to his execution. And as he's writing to his, his uh, congregation that he had planted in the past, he is talking about his current situation. He's talking about his, his current trials and how he's awaiting potential death, which may happen in the near future. 
And as he is writing about such things, he also talks about the nature of our hope. So Philippians chapter 1, verses uh, the second half of 18 through 26, Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, meaning the predicament, the trial that he's in, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not at all be ashamed, I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So remember, Paul here sitting in a Roman prison writing to this Philippian congregation about his current circumstances. His current circumstances. And Paul here is wrestling with potential death. He knows that death could be right around the corner for him. Next day, the next week, the next month. But soon, and he's wrestling with how do I view my impending death or potential death. And Paul gives us an answer to this question. How should I view my potential death? We see that, that answer. He says, um, convinced of this, my desire is to remain and continue with you all. But Paul doesn't just give us an answer. It's, one commentator says that it's, it's like Paul sharing his, his personal diary with the church. He, he's sharing and giving a glimpse into his own internal processing of this question regarding his potential death. Which, what should I desire? What outcomes should I desire? And boys and girls, I once heard what Paul is doing here described like, uh, like math class. So all of you probably are taking math right now. And imagine in, in math class um, when your teacher, even your textbook, is, is explaining a new concept. Usually your teacher or textbook will, will present a, a new, uh, an example problem. And they won't just give the answer to that example problem, but they will show their work. How do you arrive at the, the, the correct answer? Because what's important for you to know is not just the answer, but how to arrive at the correct answer. And that's why your teacher probably requires that you show your work in your math homework and not just put the correct answer on the page. Because the process is just as important as the outcome, the answer. And so we see here Paul being a very good pastor, very good teacher. He doesn't just give the Philippian congregation the right answer. He shows them how to internally work through this very thorny issue of potential death. How should we think about potential death? He doesn't just give them an answer. He shows them how to think about it, how to work through it. And as we consider Paul's internal processing, his internal processing is very theologically rich. Because even though Paul's desire is to remain in the flesh so that he continue, can continue to benefit the churches, 
yet he says that uh, his greatest desire, uh, selfishly speaking, is to depart and be with Christ. Now, what does that teach us? That teaches us that for those who die in this age before the second coming of Christ, our souls go immediately to be with the Lord. Paul knew that if this trial ends in his death, he will immediately go, his soul will immediately go to be with the Lord in heaven while our bodies rest in the grave. So there's a separation between the body and the soul, and the soul goes to be with the Lord. This is what, the, what, what Paul is saying. Paul also says in another place, which uh, you, can, you can just listen to, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8, through 8, Paul says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body than at home with the Lord. Paul here is saying a very similar thing. He's saying that when we are at home in the body, meaning we are living in this world with our human nature, we are in some sense physically away from the Lord. But when we die in this age, or if we die in this age before Christ returns, we are then away from the body, our body rests in, in the grave, and our soul goes to be at home with the Lord. And therefore, uh, we see this in, in our catechism as well, as our catechism says in question 57, that not only my soul will be taken immediately after this life to Christ, its head. Our soul goes immediately to be with the Lord. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians 5. And thus we confess together as a Christian church our hope of going to be with the Lord whenever he ordains that our time is up here on earth. And we can have confidence and assurance of that reality that our soul will be with the Lord. Well, the second doctrine that we confess here is we confess the hope of a future resurrection or bodily resurrection. We confess the hope of a future bodily resurrection. So you'll see this in our catechism as well in question 57. It says that not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Made like Christ's glorious body. Uh, so if, if, you, if you would, you can turn just a couple pages in your Bibles to Philippians 3, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. What a catechism is telling us is that we have the hope of, of a bodily future existence. When Christ returns in his second coming, our bodies, our, the human nature we, we currently have will be raised and glorified and transformed. And for those who, who died in this age and experienced that separation of the body and the soul where their souls went to be with the Lord and their bodies rest in the grave, at Christ's second coming there will be a great reunion of the body and the soul. At that moment when Christ issues in the new creation. And so we confess a future bodily resurrection. And Paul, 
reminds the Philippian believers of this reality in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. He calls them, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul here is saying that our hope is not a hope of merely a soulish experience. Our hope is a hope of a bodily future existence. We will have bodies on that last day that resemble the very body of Christ himself. It's important for us to remember that Christ's human nature didn't cease when he died or arose again or even ascended into heaven. Christ continues to have a human nature at the right hand of the Father. We then will have bodies that mirror the very human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our hope. This is our hope. Now, what's the relevance of, of this doctrine? This doctrine of confessing together this future hope in the resurrection of, of the body. Uh, well, before we consider that, I'd like to, to also note that, um, uh, well, forgive me, no, uh, we'll actually just consider the relevance um, at this point. So what's the relevance of, of, this, of this doctrine? Well, many scholars have noted today that our current culture is marked with what they refer to as a sort of new Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism was an ancient heresy that the early church dealt with. It was quite a complex movement, but if you were to, to boil it down, the main kind of gist of this movement was that the individuals in this movement confessed a body-soul dualism, meaning that they had a very negative view of the body, a very negative view of nature, and a pretty high view of one's inner psyche and, or spirit or soul. And thus salvation was thought of as a salvation from one's body, from physical matter. And the salvation came through what's called gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. Thus it was referred to as Gnosticism. So salvation came through uh, 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 knowing this, this certain gnosis that would save you or redeem you from your body. Well, these scholars have noted that there's a lot of similarities in our current culture and day and age to this ancient heresy of Gnosticism. How so? Well, we live in a, a culture that very much devalues the authority of the body, the authority of nature as a legitimate authority. And we live in an age that very much elevates and emphasizes the authority of one's inner psyche, spirit or soul. Now, of course, an extreme example of this is when um, you have individuals who, who claim to be 
the opposite sex of what their bodily sex is. And instead of bringing one's inner psyche to conformity with the body, we bring one's body in conformity to one's inner psyche. So again, you see how the body has very little authority, legitimate authority, and there's this huge emphasis on the authority of one's inner psyche. Well, we also see this dynamic going on in, in less extreme ways. And we have to remember that we all are complicit in this cultural moment and movement as we live and operate in this same culture. And we see in our culture, in less extreme ways, that feelings are king. Our inner psyche and state of psychological happiness is king. It's the compass, the main compass that people use to navigate their life. We see this in how people think of their own sense of self or identity. People today place very little weight on the identities that's been given to them members of a family, of a church, of a country, and place a lot of emphasis on what they feel they are. So again, we see a lot of uh, uh, emphasis on, on one's inner psyche and feelings. We also see this being played out in, in the Christian church today. Think about how often people decide what church to go to based on how that church makes them feel not on objective measures or objective marks of whether the word is truly preached, whether the sacraments are administered in a pure way, or whether there are elder, elders governing a church who are themselves held accountable, who are there to discipline and disciple. Those things get very little attention and weight, and the primary um, factor that people used to decide what church to go to is whether the church gives them a good inner feeling. We see this in terms of how people decide on a future or potential spouse. Very often, people's main determiner and who they should marry is whether that person will exist to serve their inner happiness. And there's less of an emphasis on objective qualities of this potential spouse. Qualities such as character or virtue or whether they would make a good husband, wife, mother, father, provider, nurturer, and rather all people think about is whether that person will exist to serve their happiness, their inner psyche. And so when we confess this doctrine of a future bodily resurrection, we are being countercultural because we're saying the body matters, nature matters. And that it is authoritative and that we are looking forward to not merely a soulish experience in the new creation, but a body and soul experience. And that Christ himself continues to have a body and we will have bodies that resemble his body. And so we confess together hope in a future bodily resurrection. This is important for us to keep in mind. Well, lastly, we also confess hope of everlasting joy, a future everlasting joy and existence. So you'll see that in question 58 of our catechism, we confess what we mean when we speak of life everlasting, life everlasting. Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life, I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, 
no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. Paul, uh, the catechism here is quoting from 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says that we are looking forward to something that we can't even fathom in this life, life everlasting. It's also important for us to realize that the catechism says this is the beginning of eternal joy, the beginning of eternal joy. Our motions in this life are fallen, have been tainted with the effects of Adam and Eve's sin. And thus, we know that our experience of joy in this life oftentimes feels like a roller coaster, and there are many things, and many things even outside of our control, that influence our experience of joy. This is part of the reason why that inner psyche shouldn't be our main guide and compass in our lives. There are many times when we need to do things even when we don't feel like it. Case in point, coming to church. Many times where we probably don't feel like coming to church, but yet we do so anyways, and the bodily rituals and routines that we partake of together in our liturgy shape us even when we don't feel like it's doing anything. But we are looking forward to a time when our joy will be completed as we experience consummated union with our Lord. We are looking forward to a time when all the joys that we experience in this life from God's good and perfect blessings that come down to us, common joys, we will experience the fulfillment, the telos of those things in the new creation. And so we confess together the hope of life everlasting and this everlasting joy. As I mentioned, this concludes our consideration of the Apostles' Creed. And uh, next time we will consider together the benefits of this faith. So remember the context. We have considered the nature of true faith, knowledge, assent, and trust, and the contents of faith, meaning the things that we need to know, assent to, and trust in are contained in the Apostles' Creed. Now what happens when we profess this true faith? What benefit do we receive? And that's the subject that we will take up next week. So let's